If the person asking who's in charge, if they sound upset and as if they are likely to be making a complaint, then I'm not in charge. If it seems they've had a good experience and they want to give compliments, uh, then maybe, maybe I am in charge. If we're dealing with a person who is a type A alpha male leader of the pack sort of person, then that type of individual is quick, no matter the circumstance, to, to want to speak up and let the person asking and anybody that cares to know, I'm in charge, whether for good or bad. They, they want people to know. Well, that was the type of person that King Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be. And this is a story about a time in the life of Nebuchadnezzar when he was reminded who is in charge. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and uh, he was troubled by the dream, and Daniel came to him and interpreted the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the interpretation of that dream. It is, uh, the dream was about a tree that grew and became strong and visible to the end of the whole earth. And that tree was cut down and left with only a stump. The stump of its roots in the earth was bound with a band of iron and bronze and that uh, his that portion is with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Daniel says in verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you. So you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Verse 28 says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my great power, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. As we read these words, it may sound strange to us, phrased the way it is. 
But I tell you, friends, this is not so strange. All you have to do is pay attention as you drive down the streets, and you'll see people like this on the corners of the intersections begging for food, begging for whatever anyone's willing to give them. This is not so strange. Verse 34, there's been a transition in the speaker, and now King Nebuchadnezzar is speaking. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I want to tell you people, this evening, on this first day of 2023, that God is in control. And anybody that doubts or questions who is really in charge, who is really calling the shots. God is able to let them know. God is able to let everyone in the world know that He is calling the shots. He is the one who is in control. What do we mean when we say that God is in control? I think we can take a look at this little story and Nebuchadnezzar's confession towards the end of the story and find just a little glimpse of what it means when we say that God is in control. Firstly, notice that it means His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. This is from the last part of verse 34. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is the first part of Nebuchadnezzar's confession after his sanity is restored. And Nebuchadnezzar is not uncommon or unusual in this respect when he makes this statement, or, or rather he is forced to make this statement. It seems to be a common delusion if you look at the way people live their lives that so many seem to feel or they seem to treat their lives and their circumstances as if they will live forever. They go their way from day to day giving little thought to their eternal destiny. They're just taking care of themselves, perhaps their families, and uh, many will argue the legitimacy of what they're doing, and I, I would grant that there is some need to provide for our physical, material wants, and uh, that's, that's all right. That's understood. However, we also need to keep in mind that the period of time uh, that we are bound by during which we are inhabiting a physical body that we need to feed and keep sheltered, compared to the time that we will spend in eternity, that is a very limited period of time. Yet so many continue on day after day as if, we're just going to live forever. Thinking about something being eternal is difficult to wrap our heads around. I know that 
at least for me, when I think of something that is eternal, the first thing that comes to my mind is just something that goes on for a long time. Just a long, long period of days or years or decades, but that doesn't come close to capturing the meaning of eternity. God is one who dwells in eternity. The Scripture tells us He inhabits eternity. That means He is timeless, and that's essentially what eternity is. It is, an, it is a, um, it's a realm where there is no time. There is no past, present, or future. It is simply eternity. Now, I don't know any better way to understand this than what I've heard. I've heard it illustrated this way by thinking about the author of a story. I like to read stories. I like to hear stories, whether they be true stories or made-up stories. I like stories. And if you think about the author of a story, that story has a beginning point in time, and that story has an end point in time. In other words, everything that takes place from page one to the last page where it says the end, that is all taking place over a specified period of time that is determined by the author of the story. But the author is not bound by the timeline of his own story. He is outside of his story. And as best I can understand, that is a little glimpse of what eternity means. We are part of the story that God is writing, that God is creating, if you will allow me that little illustration. We are part of the story. God wrote the beginning, and He is leading us to an appointed end. Yet God Himself is outside of the story. Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, Paul is speaking in Athens on Mars Hill. And he says to them uh, about the God who made everything. He says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. God has written us into His story. We are part of the time frame, yet God Himself is part of an eternal kingdom. Let me see if I can give a little bit more meaning to this. This is a a little mnemonic. I may have I may have shared with you before. I I think uh, it's a little memory device. It's kind of a nonsense sentence, uh, but for some reason, when it was taught to me, it stuck in my head, and uh, I haven't been able to forget it. Is Adam beating Paul greatly running? Is Adam beating Paul greatly running? Do you think you could remember that? Say it out loud with me. Is Adam beating Paul greatly running? Preacher, what in the world does this have to do with what you're talking about? 
Well, let me see if I can explain this to you. This is a, 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 an acrostic. And the IS stands for Israel and Syria. The A in Adam stands for Assyria. Then you have the B, which stands for Babylon. Then you have the P, which stands for Persia. And the G, which stands for Greece. And the R, which stands for Rome. Some might say, wouldn't it just be easier to, to remember Israel, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome? I don't, not for me, it's easier for me to remember is Adam beating Paul greatly running. And then I can go back and it reminds me what those, what those letters stand for. You see, these are the kingdoms that were dominant during Old Testament history. And this is the order in which they came to power and prominence in the Bible days. These are the kingdoms represented by Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2 of Daniel. Do you remember that vision that Daniel saw, or rather Nebuchadnezzar saw the great uh, image with the head of gold and so on and so forth, uh, and uh, uh, the king said, you know, whoever, somebody's got to tell me what this dream means, and, and not only do they have to tell me what the dream means, they have to tell me the dream, so I'll really know that they know what they're talking about. And God revealed uh, the meaning of the dream to Daniel, and each part of this image represents different kingdoms that came to power and came to prominence. And Daniel explains each one and how uh, the, um, well, let's see, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 32, it, it reads, The head of this image is of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and gold all together were broken and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And Daniel comes to a, a culmination, a conclusion of what all of this dream, this vision, what it means in verse 44. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The same idea is repeated in chapter 4, verse 3 of Daniel, where it says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Again, Daniel chapter 6 and verse 26. 
He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. And then again in chapter 7 and verse 14, And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Friends, the point of what God is telling Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel and through this experience that he had of losing his kingdom and and going out and and living like an animal uh, and uh, becoming wet with the dew of heaven and eating grass and all that he experienced, the thing that God is trying to tell him is that God is in control and his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Kingdoms of this earth will rise and will fall. But God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. That's what we mean when we say God is in control. It also means that no one is a contender for his role. No one is a contender for the role that God fills in this universe. We see this in verse 35, the first part of verse 35, which is the second portion of Nebuchadnezzar's confession. He says, there all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now, we ought to understand that this is not uh, a verse saying that people as God's creation are inconsequential and that it doesn't matter to God what happens to us. That's not what this is saying. What this is, is simply a statement about our finiteness compared to God's infinitude. The fact that we are created beings and God is eternal and there's not a single one of us that can compete with God or can fill the role that God fills, either for our own lives or for anyone else's life. If you will allow me again to take you back to the illustration of author and novel. No matter how much power a character in a story is given, there's not a single one that can compete with the author for power in reality. Let's let's imagine for a moment a, a character... Let's imagine a a fictional character. Let's make that character faster than a speeding bullet and more powerful than a locomotive and able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And yet even Superman, as powerful as we read about him to be, cannot be more powerful than the author that created him because he's not real. He is a fictional creation. You see, in order for a character in a story to become more powerful or to compete with the author uh, for the author's role, for that position of control and power, they, they would have to step out of the story into real life, flesh and blood. And we know that that is utterly impossible to take place. Except in one instance, that's happened. We just came through a celebration where someone stepped into our story, took on flesh and blood, became one of us to show us what God is really like. 
Yet in our world and we as humanity, no one of us can contend or can compete with God for his role, either in our own life or in anyone else's life. And it's been Satan's goal from the beginning to try and convince humanity that we can be God for ourselves. Think about it in the story of Adam and Eve. The the first question that is asked is, has God really said just, just to plant that little seed of doubt and bring them to the place of questioning God's authority over their lives and ultimately bringing them to the point of deciding that they could play God for themselves. They could define God. We, we can go on and mention numerous examples from God's Word about this or even into the modern day uh, story of history. We could look at men like the Hitlers and, and the Husseins and even our, some modern day uh, uh, more modern day pop stars and singers like, like Frank Sinatra who said, I did it my way. Or there's a more modern day st- still performing now, as far as I know, a man named John Bon Jovi who said, it's my life. It's now or never. I not, I'm not going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. I, it's my life. I'm in charge, yet, friends, these people will one by one, one day realize that they they can only play God for themselves for a limited period of time. God has allowed us a temporary uh, uh, reprieve, a time during which we can choose to reject His will, but it's only temporary. No one can be truly a contender for God's role. God's in control. Finally, when we say that God is in control, it means that God's will is done in heaven and on earth. This might sound a little counterintuitive based on what I just said, but hang with me for just a moment. To the end of verse 35 in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says this, He, God, does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? If we are allowed to go our own way, if humanity is allowed to make their own decisions contrary to God's will, it is only because God has allowed them that freedom for a temporary time. Anytime God wants, He is able to intervene in my life or in your life or in the life of that one who is shaking their fist in His face and saying, God, I'll have my own way. Anytime God wants, He can intervene in that person's life and says, oh, no, you won't. It is my will be done. Someone has said there are two types of people in this world. There are those that say, thy will be done and those that say, my will be done. Some would say, well, preacher, what about free will? Don't we have free will? And there's, uh, it, you can 
look at different doctrinal and denominational perspectives and read and study about the arguments and the, and the tension that plays back and forth between these two ideas of, of the sovereignty and, and the control of God and the free will of man. And there are some who say that man's free will is just an illusion. It's not true that we have free will at all. God is in control and what God has decided is destined and, and there's nothing that any of us can do about it. And yet, I believe that the Bible teaches us clearly that God has limited Himself and given us a certain amount of freedom for a period of time. The best illustration I've heard of this was uh, given by A.W. Tozer, and uh, the, the gist of it is this. If you imagine that you are ever uh, privileged to be able to take a ship on a cruise liner, uh, the point of departure and the point of arrival are determined by the authorities in charge of that cruise liner. In other words, you're going to leave from a certain place at a certain time, and then you're going to disembark at a certain place and at a certain time. Those those points of, of departure and those points of arrival are, are set. And there's nothing you or any other passenger can do about it. However, while you are on board that ship, my understanding is that there's any, there are any number of activities that, that you can participate in while you're on board ship. There are n- numerous uh, restaurants, places you can eat, different styles, different types of foods, numerous games you can play, activities that you can participate in, different ways that you can spend your free time uh, there on, on board the ship. And so you can choose while you're there, but there's nothing you can do to change where that ship leaves from and where it arrives. And friends, in the same way, God is sovereign like the cruise liner authorities. God has determined a certain point of departure and a certain point of arrival. And we're in that period of time in the middle, but this world and this life is going to go to the destiny that God has in mind. And there's nothing you or I or any one of us can do about it. All we can do is just determine which side we're going to be on when we come to the end. So what is the application for us this evening as a church, as we look forward to a new year? Well, I think the first point of application that we ought to remember is simply this. Don't worry about temporary kingdoms. Israel, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. You know what I'm doing, don't you? I have to go back and... Think about that nonsense sentence. All of those kingdoms rose and fell. Republicans, Democrats, I, and I, I, I'm not, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Uh, I'm just, I just want us all to understand that no matter where we are, all of, all of these 
kingdoms of this earth, Russia, the Ukraine, China. We could go on and on and on. Every, every authority, every human authority will one day bow its knee before the King of kings and Lord of lords. So friends, don't worry too much about temporary kingdoms. Rest and trust in God who is in control. Second and very important lesson we learn from the life of Nebuchadnezzar is humble yourself willingly or be humbled against your will. Humble yourself willingly or be humbled against your will. That may happen in this life and it may not happen until the next life. But one way or another, it will happen. And we have the opportunity now while we stand on this side of God's Word. The day will come when we stand on the other side of God's Word to be judged by it. But now we stand on one side, on the other side of God's Word, where we can read and study and it can inform and shape our lives. And we can bow our knees in humility to the Lordship of Christ. And allow Him to be sovereign in our lives. Humble yourself now. And then finally, simply don't worry about the final outcome. We know where this is going to end. We know the direction this is going to go. We, we don't know how. We don't know necessarily all of the turns and, and uh, uh, twists that might take place. Uh, if I could, in conclusion, take you back to uh, the illustration of the author and novel. You know, any good story has a lot of twists and turns. Um, I love a story with a plot twist. I enjoy a story where I think I know what's going to happen and then suddenly the author takes that story and goes in a completely different direction and I, I think, wow, I didn't see that coming. And I've read stories, and, and I'm sure you have too, that, that seemed impossible where the outcome seemed as if it was impossible for the good guys to come out on top. The forces of evil seem to be so powerful and overwhelming that the, the forces of good are going to go down in defeat. Yet, friends, no matter how bad it gets, the author is in control, and he can and will bring the story to a happy ending. Praise God, He is in control tonight. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, we thank You that You are ruling and reigning from on high. You are the high and holy one that inhabits eternity, yet You also dwell with the one who is of a humble and contrite spirit. Father, we want to invite you in to our world, into our lives, uh, in not just to, to be a passenger, not just to ride along, but to be in the driver's seat, to be in control as we enter into navigating a new year. Father, would you help us in every way, in every area, that there would be nothing, nowhere in our lives that is not uh, brought under submission to your authority. And Lord, if there is anything in any of us where we are, we are 
tempted or, or trying to cling to control. Father, would you open our eyes to see that and help us to realize that it is far better for us to give you control of every detail. And Lord, we trust you. We pray for those that are struggling in this area. We pray for those that, that you are calling them to you, calling them to serve you. Father, would you help them to see that, that serving you, that your kingdom, it is the pearl of great price. It is the treasure hidden in the field. Lord, would you help us as your people to, to show this reality to a world that so badly needs to see it. Lord, would you help us to show a picture of your kingdom that doesn't uh, look restrictive or, or hindering or unpleasant and unhappy, but help us to show the world a picture of your kingdom that is delightful and that is winsome and attractive and that makes everyone want to know what it is that makes us who and what we are. And Lord, we will thank you and give you all the praise for, the, uh, for what you accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.